Hello everyone and welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. Today on the show, we have Jerry Scullion. Jerry is the founder of This Is HCD, the global human-centered design podcast and international design community of changemakers. And he is founder and CEO of thisisdoing.com. In a previous life, he was a musician and songwriter that released two albums under the moniker of Minor Circus, and he worked, among others, with 13-time Grammy-winning producer Rafa Sedina. A few months ago, I was guest on his podcast, and we talked about the interrelationship of music and design and what design can learn from music. So today, we talk about how the shared mindset comes back in the daily life of a facilitator, service designer, and change maker. And Jerry gives us insights how it was like working with a top-notch producer that had the experience, knowledge, and ability to drill down and zoom in on a detail and then drill the whole way out to see the whole. And we talk about bringing vulnerability and laughter to co-create innovation and to engage people to be their very best. And by the way, the instrument you hear in the beginning is the theremin we talked about in our first conversation. So, let's get into it. Welcome, Jerry. Welcome to The Power of Music Thinking. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I am, I'm a, I'm a long-term listener, as in like, you know, I've, I've been listening since you, you launched your podcast. So, I'm honored to be, uh, to be a guest. And thank you for promoting it. And that's also, that we, we, could use, we could say this is episode two of our talk. Because yeah. the first talk we did on your podcast, and we will talk about this also <laughs> later. And, and now, uh, so I'm inviting you back. And um, yeah, but let's start with uh, what's, what was your first concert or performance or sonic experience that had an impact Ooh, on you? My first sonic experience was probably Jean-Michel Jarre. Um, way oh. back in, in the 80s, I've got yeah, an older brother, Raymond, who uh, heavily influenced my my kind of my, my musical taste, so to speak. But I remember being a very young uh, boy sitting under we had a snooker room in our house growing up. I know privileged. Uh, my brother was mad into snooker, so I remember sitting underneath the the snooker table and hearing the the sounds of Jean-Michel Jarre playing. I think it was Equinox, and mm-hmm. um, completely blew my mind because it sounded like it was from the future. Yeah. And uh, I, I had to be convinced that a human made this, uh, that it wasn't from some alien force that was, was creating it. But then after that, uh, it was the Blue Nile, which are a band from Scotland who uh, I still idolize. And their music sonically probably defined my, my broader interests in music. So, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's up to you what you answer. Um, yeah. In and and interesting to hear, um, yeah, Jean-Michel Jarre. I don't know if people mm. still know who who he is, but he was in the 70s. This was really this full electronic music. And when we talk about electronic mm -hmm. music, it's it, it was not sampling. It was really working with the synthesizers. And and, and and by the by the way, um, I brought I brought something for you. Hey. Man, that sound. I have it on one of my albums actually. Oh really? Really? Yeah. It's um it's so distinctive. It's used in all those Hitchcock movies, of course, you know, like the the scariness and stuff. But um yeah, so I guess, you know, musically I've I've played music from the age of probably about five. I started taking up taking up music, um, and I play the piano, play the guitar, and right now I play the ukulele for my two children, and I don't get get enough time to to mess around with my guitar pedals and my guitars, which are in the back of the the setup here that I have at home. Yeah, nice ukulele. I love it too. I also play. Maybe that's the instrument that I play most at home because yeah. it's so easy to grab, easy to tune, and or absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can tune it by your ear. <laughs> but before we dive into into yeah. much more music, maybe you would like to introduce yourself. So, hmm. who are you, Jerry, and what who do you do am for I? a living? What do I do for a living? Ah, it's a complex, complex question. But um, I am a human-centered designer. I'm the CEO of ThisIsDoing.com, um, which is a live classroom design and innovation training organization. We work globally. Um, And how I make a living is through teaching design uh, online. Uh, and I facilitate sessions for organizations, mainly in around Europe at the moment, uh, like design research and service design based work. But I guess today is um, an interesting one because my previous life, I guess when I finished university, I dreamed to play music full time. And it's something that, you know, I, I see design and music as being two, two very much the same thing. Nice. That's why you're here. So in the power of music thinking. Yeah. And, um, but t talk a little bit more about uh, facilitation, online facilitation. Did you do this before the, the COVID thing hmm. also online or? or, or yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, there's, a, there's a kind of a co-op of sorts within this is doing many of the people that I've uh, grown up reading and respecting uh, are part of the business. So um, we've got one of the world's best design and innovation teams um, and many of the people there work internationally. And when I lived in Australia, I worked across Australia and Australia being such a huge country Many uh, times I'd be working, I'd have to facilitate sessions online because it was cost prohibitive to to run workshops in face to face. You'd have to, you know, sort of include flights and hotels and so forth mm -hmm. for what might only be possible for two or three hours, whereas it's a lot more affordable um, to do it online. And it was always seen as a as a kind of like a, a sort of a second rate experience. But I guess over the last 18 months to two years, working with the likes of Mark Stickthorn and, and Adam Lawrence and many of the team at This Is Doing, um, we really transformed how we work and changed how we deliver workshops. 
And it's not just about the, the mechanics of it, but it's also the experience leading up to it and thinking holistically about how, how people are going to learn through, you know, what is essentially a piece of plastic in people's hands or people's plastics in, 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 in a room. We really try and think holistically what that looks like and how that feels like for, for an experience of somebody who might be learning something radically new. Um, so we've, we've kind of evolved a lot over the last 18 months and, you know, from our feedback from our customers is like they're having uh, incredible experiences. Mm. Yeah. That's in, you know, in, in, in the old times when we were in rooms and did the workshops and the facilitation and then let's say the last, last one year, one and a half year, it went mainly mainly online but now we get into a hybrid situation yeah. where some people are in the room and some people are are somewhere on the screen do you have experiences in this in facilitating in, let's say hybrid in um, hybrid meetings? australia yeah like a lot of the stuff would be would be hybrid where you might have um a couple of sessions online and then you might sort of uh design a more of a, an intense compressed experience and face to face tends to not really work very well when you've got a hybrid in the one session. So some people are online, some people are offline. I've done it. I facilitated sessions in, in Africa last year, mm. in Kenya and Cameroon and stuff, where, where people or internet connections were restricted and we would have more than one person on a connection. And it's much more difficult to facilitate. At the moment, we still come from that mindset. It's quite a privileged mindset, I might want to add, that every person has their own internet connection. Um, so at the moment, we're still kind of restricted by that mindset that in order to learn, you need an internet connection and it needs to be one on one. But what does it look like, how it scales when you've got two or three people at the one machine um, is something that it's in my mind. I haven't come up with any way of doing it uh, any better mm. than we've done it before, which was it's a lot of slower, a lot more kind of requires more attention and more more dedication to each person who's on that connection. Hmm. Yeah, and it's not so easy like in a room where you see that some person might not be Paying engaged uh, as much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How it's, do you get people to turn on the video? Well, I don't. I always give it give people the option and I don't stress about it because, you know, we're online all day. Well, I'm online all day and I've got a camera pointed at my face all day. And if people want to turn it off, that's fine. And I, I trust them that they're they're able to listen and watch me and if they want to be watched maybe they're eating maybe they're having a cup of tea maybe they just don't want to have the camera on because they're having a bad hair day which i'd like to add is never a problem for me because i'm bald but um it's it's something that some people really stress for it and it is definitely when you're training it's much better to see people's faces because you know that they're atten you know paying attention and they know they're engaged when the cameras go off There's lots of other things at play there and it's not up to me to really probe. Um, but there are other benefits which we, we could talk about the impact on life and the impact on energy usage and hmm. impact on sustainability. It uses a, an awful lot less bandwidth when um, people don't have their cameras turned on. Hmm. And the impact that that has on life is huge. So if everyone in the world decided just to do these things on phones, I mean phones still exist we just don't do phone calls as much anymore we do zoom yeah. calls that would have an exponential um kind of effect on the earth and the oh, amount right. of energy that's used 
Oh, so so the, that's an, uh, an an interesting aspect. So instead of, because I would say if people have a, the camera on, me as a facilitator, I can see what's going on and I can act and react. Yeah. And uh, but sometimes we forget that all the online stuff that we're doing is yeah taking having some a huge impact. Yeah, have, so, actually, yeah. having yeah. a huge impact on the earth, like all the data centers and all the energy that's used to support the infrastructure. Then how we are actually surviving running businesses it has a huge effect on the earth but it's also you know we're 18 months maybe 20 months into this pandemic people are tired people are exhausted in fact and um i think there's a there's a certain point now where i don't i, I don't ever ask people to turn on their webcams i know certain trainers that we work with always encourage it because you get a much better experience mm -hmm. but i'm just much more um aware that sometimes people have had a bad night's sleep I've got two young kids and sometimes the last thing I want to do is turn on my camera. I just want to absorb passively and I want to lie back and put my feet on the desk. Uh, and that's fine with me. So again, coming from a human-centered design perspective as being much more about the mindset of how you actually approach working with people, um, I just place trust in people that they're, they're paying attention and it's up to them if they want to learn. Okay, but, but, but that's um, for learning experiences. If you would mm. have a, a facilitation of a workshop where you need the interaction. Yeah, you need the, yeah. It is, it is different where you do need people to interact. I mean, it's, it's, I've had sessions before where there's silence where everyone just goes on mute and it seems to be a corporate thing wherever they, they log in, they say hello, turn off the cameras and go on mm. mute. And it, I don't want to say it's soul destroying, but it's um, definitely you feel empty for a large parts of it because we are humans. We respond to sounds and touches and smells and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of that stuff is taken away by working online. And if you don't even hear an echo or an, a question or a round of applause or whatever it is, you don't know if you're doing a good job and you don't know if they're paying attention. So th there has been times where you feel like, well, hello, <laughs> is there anybody out there, as uh, Roger Waters once said in a Pink Floyd song? But um, I do feel that at times where where this complete silence. So if you if you do leave your camera on and you do leave your mic on, I love the sound of people, you know, picking up doing this. Yes, this uh, kind of sound, I love that. Like that that shows that you're you're here with me, and it's it's a shared experience. That's the stuff that I I try to encourage, but I, I can't enforce it. It's impossible. Yeah, so the focus on audio is might be much more important. Yeah, and or, that's really, or sound. Sound in general is a really important thing. Like we, there's a, there's a number, there's a group of us as part of this is doing that. We we always, well, we saw a, a shift. Like in, originally, I always had a good setup. I'm a podcaster. I run this as HCD. Um, it, it started from what was a Blue Yeti microphone initially, but um, now I've got a, a pretty full-on, full-production kind of setup in my converted attic at home. So what I saw was, and Marcus Hormes, who's a wonderful designer um, based out of Germany, and he's part of This Is Doing, and also one of the co-authors of This Is Service Design, doing a fantastic book. Marcus made the observation right back at the start of the pandemic when we were launching This Is Doing, which was just coincidence. We had nothing to do with the pandemic. It wasn't us, okay? We didn't have anything to do with <laughs> Wuhan, okay? But um, Marcus said, look, we are now moving into the world of TV production. We're no longer just doing workshops. So how we distinguish ourselves is there's a level of assumption that whenever we go to facilitate, 
that we will have good audio and we'll have good cameras and the the quality will feel more like a production. Um, so I've got a soundboard here to my to my uh, to my right here, and at all times if I'm if I'm facilitating, I might put some music on in the background. Like so, say, is it okay to put some music on now at the moment? So I might start off my sessions like this. Hey folks, brilliant to have you here. And music for me, um, it's part of how I work. But um, when you introduce that into um, how you open your sessions and how you close your sessions, it feels more professional. Um, But it feels more at home for me because I am more of a performer in that sense. And how I deliver the performance I want to make sure that they realize that I'm, I'm calm. I know what I'm doing. And by having the, the confidence to include this stuff in how I work, I believe it actually changes how you're perceived. So um, I know Marcus, I looked to the likes of Adam Hormez, or Adam Hormez, Adam Lawrence. Um, they get a good <laughs> laugh out of that, Marcus Hormez. But Adam and Renatus, Renatus who I work with, it's like watching um, Sonny and Cher. It's like watching the two of them working together are, you know, they're brilliant facilitators and they have it really well oiled at this stage and how they actually include music. And I remember um, working with Adam and whenever people went into breakout rooms, Adam had a sound effect, not too dissimilar to this, but when they all started to come back in after their, uh, their breakout sessions, it felt like you were returning back after a nice massage and say how did you all get on there folks and um, everyone starts to laugh I mean how good is that if people can laugh and can not laugh as solo laugh in unison it's a really nice thing to add to to how you facilitate sessions so it's something that once I saw that I was like okay I'm nicking that one that one's coming right onto my beautiful roadcaster here that I know I use and you use as well now so um, it's a fantastic introduction to to do it uh, whenever you facilitate well, absolutely nice, and it also keeps it a little bit um, soft and nice. And and if people laugh, what you said that that that's a great thing. What, what, what do you want more? That people are uplifted in the in the way how they are engaged in a, in a in a in a workshop. Absolutely. I mean, if people do something good, it's always nice to get a round of applause. Thank <laughs> or you. Or people very much. want to crack a <laughs> crack a bad joke. Thank you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we like obviously there's a threshold there. You don't want to cross the line where you suddenly become a Laurel and Hardy sketch online. Yeah. So um, it's it's how it's used and when it's used. You have to be aware of certain instances where you just it's not appropriate. Yeah. Nice. It's also with the the icebreakers, the energizers, the mindsetters in the beginning, that when you have normal meetings and it's weekly meetings or daily meetings and you have a check-in, some people are really yeah. tired from, hey, just can we just begin? So it's also, yeah. you have to feel, and, and I also see this human-centered design doesn't mean from, oh, that's what humans uh, want or need. No, you yeah. always have to to feel and sense and listen to what, they, what they're really up to. Absolutely. I mean... If I'm in, if I'm hired to to run a workshop for an organization, and depending on the topic, it's not going to be I'm not going to be throwing music in. Um, it has to be fitting for the environment that you're and the audience as well. Um, otherwise, you could be seen as a as a stand up comic and you won't be yeah. taken seriously. But if I'm training people online and I'm training in my own kind of domain of service design, and they kind of expect a certain level of professionalism, um, and if the moment's right. 
I'll absolutely use sound to to help break the ice. So a few things come together um, mm. uh, what we just said so for, I, I see a direct line from Jean-Michel Jarre and the electronics and how this changes yeah. the, the, the music world and I also see the the hybrid situation we are in and the and the TV production or the radio production mm. so we are all DJs now or we are all TV producers and when we when you go to live events And sometimes you also get a hybrid situation because mm. when the, the concert is also uh, uh, broadcasted live. So this mm -hmm. means people in the room see a lot of technique, which yeah. distracts sometimes their experience. Mm. And people at home, they just see a part and a very close Uh, a close up which people in the in 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 the venue don't see so so yeah. i think that's interesting to to learn that's also a very nice link to to the music business yeah. um maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your encounters uh with the you call it minus circus minus circus yeah, yeah that was my that was my stage name that my My old Swedish girlfriend actually suggested the name for my my band. Um, I should point out that they didn't suggest it for my band; they suggested it for their business that I went and then bought, which was a bit of a bit of a sneaky thing for me. <laughs> But um, I've uh, probably around 2003, I'd finished university and I'd um, I had dreams about playing music, and I'd been in bands before. But I was always the person playing guitar. I never really um, had the courage to sit, step up in front of the mic and be the, the, the front man, so to speak. Um, but in 2004, I guess it was, I started to, when I come back from Australia the first time, um, I started to get a little bit more serious about it. I was kind of in between. I'd finished my degree and I realized now if you're going to do it, now's the time to try and do it. And I started to write songs and I started to do open mic sessions around Dublin and I started to get more traction and I, you know, formed a band off the back of the name and we started to do some gigs around Ireland and we started to build a following and then MySpace happened. MySpace happened in mm. 05 and suddenly it was a game changer. Like, I mean, it was night and day. We could build an audience that was international and we could put our demos up there and we could actually build the following so I started to get some um, traction in America and in 06 uh, I saved my money up and I crashed on a friend's couch in Los Angeles and I played a couple of gigs and after one of the gigs much like you hear in the movies someone came up to me and was like hey I want to introduce you to somebody and I was like, okay and that person introduced me to another person and I, I felt like I was in almost famous with that movie um, couldn't drive, which is a nightmare when you're in Los Angeles and you're a musician. I was like kind of at the, the beck and call of my, my wonderful friend over there, Aaron Olden, who drove me around. And I went to one producer's um, house. Uh, his name is Cheche Alara, who's a, who's a wonderful guy now. He's a fantastic producer and um, musical director. And he's worked with everyone. Like, literally, his list is so long that I don't even need to drop any names. Um, he's Argentinian and he, he heard my, my songs I had to play like on a stool in his studio and then he says I want you to introduce you to another person who I work with his, his name is Rafa Sardina and this was kind of like I, I didn't know who Rafa Sardina was at the time 
and um, the, the meeting was scheduled for the next morning. And I remember driving up uh, near Malibu in Calabasas in, in Los Angeles and I, I played my songs for Rafa. And it was much like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory, you know, where at the very end, Charlie walks into the room and he, he leaves the, the gobstopper. That was like me leaving the, my, my demo disc to Rafa. He was like, you yeah, know, thank, thanks for your time. And I walked out and I was like, I don't know how that went. And later on that night, Rafa called me. He goes, look, we want to offer you a production deal. We want to bring you over to America and we'll, we'll put together a band for you. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I am a band. And he's like, no, 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 you're not. He's like, it's, it's you. You are what we want to work with. We don't know those other people. So I had to have that kind of tough conversation with people back in Ireland at the time, what it, what it meant. Um, and I, I'd give them my word that if anything happened, you know, we would we would reform and, you know, I'd include them in that process. But I went over to Los Angeles and recorded a, a demo slash EP that um, was with a view to try and getting a, an extended deal with the labels. This was 07 or stuff, and it started to have rippled effects in the industry online at that stage, and labels were dropping bands. So I, I use that. This is how I psychologically use that as my excuse why I didn't get signed. But the reality was I probably wasn't that good. Um, and I had that EP, but I had a wonderful experience. It wasn't that I, um, I feel like it was a failure. It actually, it actually formed my mindset. It had a huge effect on how I see music and how I see design and working with what I would consider to be the best in the business. And a lot of those session players that I, I worked with have then gone on to, um, have huge careers like Sean, who was my bassist, is now John Mayer's bassist in Los wow. Angeles. And I remember um, Pete Thorne, who was the guitarist, He uh, the week after that, when I left, I remember I was playing a beautiful Gibson, beautiful, uh, like a, I don't know, it was like a sunbird of some sort. Um, the week after, he got picked up by Chris Cornell and uh, he started to play with Chris Cornell until Chris died say Chris like he knew like we were friends but anyway I remember seeing Chris Cornell playing that guitar a week after I arrived back into Dublin and it was so trippy for me but the, mm -hmm. a lot of the, a lot of the people that I worked with um you know they were just incredible they were mind-blowingly talented um and I saw how they actually work with my sketches of ideas and how they brought these things alive was transformative for me and I carry that through to this day and how I how I apply that thinking into design Wow, what a story. And you're very <laughs> humble because you, you had one, uh, you uh, released a podcast, I think, just a few weeks ago with uh, Rafa Sardina. Mm. And uh, yeah, he's a very well-known uh, person. Yeah, he like it was funny because um, I, it was good that I didn't really know that much about Rafa when I originally met. Rafa's an, an interesting person, okay? He's um, Basque from in Spain, like, you know... Um, And when we worked together, I remember we had so many funny stories. It was so many, so many funny times working together where his, his manager then became my manager for a period of time. And that person, uh, Clarice was her name, used to manage Ocean Way Studios in Los Angeles. And that's how Rafa got his break. And I remember doing, um, you know, I was upstairs in one of Rafa's rooms in the studio. And in the kitchen area, there was a, there was a picture. And it was a layout and it was signed. And I was like, who's that, who's that signed by? Like, you know, and he's like, oh, that's Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, you worked with Frank Sinatra. And he was like, yeah. He said, man, what an experience. And this is what it was like 
um, in the breakout rooms where I felt completely like, um, you know, not worthy to be amongst these people who worked with Michael Jackson, you know, like you know, Stevie Wonder, um, James Brown, like they, they've they met and they've experienced you know, working with these people. And then there was me, little old 25-year-old Jerry sitting in the room kind of going, is anyone going to have the last slice of pizza or will... Uh, I had nothing to add to the conversation. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, um, when I go back to Ireland, uh, I'm thinking I might try and book a gig. <laughs> I had nothing to add. And it was it was, it was was an unusual experience for me to feel like that because they were what I would call cats. You know, they were they were out there. They were They were playing with the best and they were touring the world. And then there was me, and um, you know, it, it it made me feel a little bit more like the the hill is and the mountain is so big to get to that point. But it also gave me hope that you know I was here, I was I was trying these things out, and I was learning. That was the most important thing. That's the way I framed it in my mind. I was just going to learn as much as I possibly can from them. What did you learn? Can you give us an example? And can you give us an example? What did you learn that you use today? Yeah, I guess. Working with Rafa is is really interesting because Rafa is a mixer. Okay, he's 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 a producer, but he's also a mixer. Hmm. So his his ears are his livelihood. He has got an incredible ability to to drill what I would in my world from different zoom levels. So he he's able to hear everything and understand the journey of how that sound was created. So in terms of processors, in terms of mics, in terms of leads, in terms of room, in terms of Everything needs to be considered when he's recording. It wasn't on, just the, hang on. so. That's not only the mixer, but that's also the analytical skills. Yeah. So because if you know, because you just mentioned where they come from, how they mm. how these sounds are made, then you can mix them. But yeah. if you already have them together, it's good to understand where do yeah. they come from and what's their origin and and uh, spe uh, speciality. Exactly. Exactly. I, I remember. There was instances where he was, he just spent a lot of time trying to figure out the mic uh, situation for my voice and which mic mm. would work best. And, you know, he had access to phenomenal gear that um, he would just use and he, he would test and he would listen for, you know, what felt best because he was able to drill down. He, he knew he had the knowledge that if I recorded this mic and this worked well, uh, it'll balance really nicely in the mix for these other things. So he was working what I would consider from a service design perspective. He was working at a very drill down, very low level, zoom level. And he was able to zoom all the way back out and he knew where this was going. He said, okay, well, he would have these conversations with me. And I remember one of the songs, I, I'd written about maybe 40 or 50 songs to go over there and they would pick four, four songs that are five songs, I can't remember that he thought they had had legs as he would say they would they could they could grow and they could work with them one of the songs they picked out i remember saying please don't pick this one out this was a throwaway song it was called revolve and um it was very poppy it was very poppy and the hook in it was i want to be happy okay right and even as i say it now it's cheesy but believe it or not it was the song that people have paid for like labels have used it and it's been used and and advertising and, and so forth at this but because it's such a strong hook and I remember him sitting down beside me and was like look why don't you like this and I go because I don't want to be perceived as like a pop star okay I'm mm. not that person he's like look I know where you're from he says I know where you're from I know you adore you too I know you love the rock bands it's part of your culture in Ireland he says give me your trust that I will not make you sound 
like you are like a pop star. And I said, okay, you're going to put some heavy guitars into this because I couldn't, I couldn't play this one live. And he was like, okay, cool. So they, I, I gave him some sounds to work with. But again, it's, it's the ability to build trust with um, the artist and the ability to work with the artist and put them at ease. He was a master, like a master um, stakeholder manager, a master editor, a master producer, a ma- like a master in all aspects and how you would create something. And that is kind of what I learned the most um, from working with him and both Cheche. Cheche was incredible as well to work with back in the time. It seems so strange to talk about something that happened like 15, 16 years ago, but it's still something that I re- would reflect on. And I know I listened to Pork, Pork McGuire, um, who I know introduced you from The Thrills. I listened to that episode. And he speaks about the same thing as well, where he was working with Tony Hoffer, who coincidentally I actually mm-hmm. was communicating with about recording those songs as well. He was one of the people that I'd met in Los Angeles around that time. And the ability to work and uh, solve problems from, uh, you know, sonically is very similar to how you solve problems within organizations. And from a a musician's perspective, I carry that forward in everything that I do. Um, So it's interesting to hear his perspective on things as well. I also hear something like quality versus commercial instinct. Mm. And I, th- and I think that might be also very, yeah, very good analogy to service design, where mm. we do research, where we as service designer we really know it, and yeah. and, the, and sometimes the bad business they make different decisions, <laughs> things like this. And Absolutely. I think that's a, that's an interesting one, not only to to go for that quality and and that let's call it genre, <laughs> yeah, that genre, but also make it a little bit broader and see Mm -hmm. what does it do for people and uh, yeah one appreciation from people is that they would buy it so Mm -hmm. so so there's nothing wrong with that there is a link i would say it's the the other way around if you just only do it for commercial instinct and i think that's something that where where we as good service designer gets some kind of distortion where we say, oh, no, 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 that's just uh, selling. So we really want the quality and uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong if there's good quality, if there's also a commercial commercial link. Absolutely. I remember when I, um, when I was out there, that was what they were doing. They were effectively creating a set of songs that would showcase, that would lead to something else. Okay, so... The commerciality aspect was really important. And whenever I spoke to Rafa, like it was one of the things that I was keen to understand a little bit more about how how bands do it, like like in the present day and also in the past. That's what the A&R person was. They were looking for the hit. They were looking for this, that sound that was going to fit. And they, they've got these incredible ears for those sounds and those movements and genres that are going to emerge. And when it comes to mixing and producing, Rafa, you know, he, he works at Lady Gaga and a few other people. Like when he's mixing Lady Gaga's albums, he's always looking about what other stuff is going on out there. So so it, it fits and it feels familiar and it, it's got that sticky stickiness that people are going to listen to and kind of go, it feels kind of, feels fresh, but it also feels kind of like I've heard maybe this one before, but I like it and it grows. Mm. There's a There's a somewhat of a science behind those things. Um, and it was interesting to hear when I spoke with them that it hasn't really evolved that much. I wanted to see, were they were they testing those ideas out? Were they testing those new songs out? 
like like a listening room and saying, oh, I love that song and it might only be a demo, but they weren't doing that. So it's still very much in the, the human aspect of somebody there has got these magic ears that's able to sit back and listen and kind of go, that's going to be a hit, do it again. And working with it and refining it and making it into, you know, what could be a super hit. Um, so it's interesting to see that that hasn't really changed that much. Where's the mixing part in our business in service mm. design or design thinking? Where's the mixing part? Because the mixing part later on is done by sometimes by other people that are mm. less connected to the service design or to put it the other way around. Sometimes people ask me, what is service design? And um, yeah, you know that in the music thinking framework, I'm connecting a lot of things like yeah. organizational change, branding, and I think service design is really good if it really can connect with everything mm -hmm. and that everybody understands the, let's say, customer journey or the persona mm -hmm. or for whom we are doing this and that yeah. we have proof from qu quantitative data and qualitative da data. But the part is, how could we bring these experience this knowledge and this quality yeah. from the mixing to 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 business yeah can we teach people in well can you teach people well you can 100 teach people um you know mightn't you mightn't be trying to make people a designer but you need to be make them aware that they're designing um when they're working and that's the differentiation mm. it's not about making everyone a designer or a musician in this that's instance. a good thing can you elaborate on this Well, you can teach the skills to people about um, how design works, okay? But the outcome that you're trying to teach is not sometimes to become a designer. It's to teach the language of design. So that be aware that when you're working in an organization that there's, there's thousands and thousands of micro decisions being made on a day-to-day -day basis that affect the end experience of your customers or the people using that service. So they might not ever become a designer, but they need to be aware that they are designing. So the role of a designer is somebody who is aware of the craft and the ability to, to work in these complex environments and make um, sense out of the signal-to-noise ratio. And going back to your first question of who's the mixer in that instance, that would be the service designer. So somebody who has uh, the ability to move from high up and the ability to move really low down That is a skill that not everyone has. And sometimes I, I would argue that it might be a very difficult thing to teach um, because some people might not have the interest to go all the way down to the nuts and bolts. So whenever I'm interviewing people for service design roles, I'm always interested to see in other behaviors that they have in their life that they have that kind of curiosity to go really deep into what can be seen as the weird, you know, the, the tinkering of electronics versus you know um you know at the moment i've got a, like i don't know if you can see in the, in the background there i've got a commodore amiga from the 1990s that i've got and now i'm about to embark on the journey about sort of retrofitting this thing into the modern world that there is something if someone said to me in an interview i'm like okay cool they're they're interested in the the minutiae yep. the small details because those small details is what distinguish average design with great design I like this very much. I would like to translate this in uh, instrument knowledge. Mm. So, so it's one part to to play an instrument, but it's it's another one to really instrument uh, in, to really understand what that instrument can do. And yeah. I think the the first one that's for the designer. They have to play that instrument. And uh, in, in the framework, I call everything instruments, like a business model canvas or a persona, customer journey. So I call this instruments. Yeah. And to to explain people. 
you have to learn these instruments. It's not just a poster to fill. Mm-hmm. And then bring it in and, 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 and really make something out of it where you can make uh, sound uh, d- decisions. On the yeah. other hand, the people have to understand what this instrument can do. So the yeah. nut designers that make decisions that have an impact on design. So that's, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, li- I like that. Uh, it's interesting, all right. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes we need a little bit of silence, isn't it? That's <laughs> <laughs> no, true. Like, you know, I think um, within uh, design, organizations can get very much attached to a certain thing. So they can get attached to a certain type of tool or method that has sort of generated some sort of results for them or generated some sort of value for them. But it's important to mention, like, you know, what got us here is not is not what is going to get us there. Okay, so we need to always move and um, be comfortable with that level of ambiguity to test new ways of working and new processes out all the time. Um, And that's something that you would see very much so in the the production studio or in the music studio. I remember when I was living in Sydney and I was recording my album over there and I worked with a guy called Brendan O'Brien, not that Brendan O'Brien, another Brendan O'Brien, Brendan O'Brien, you know, famous grunge producer, a different Brendan O'Brien, equally as talented though. Um, But we were recording in a studio that um, just had so many instruments Chris Vallejo owns this wonderful studio called Linear Studios where, um, what's the name of that Australian band? They got Walking on the Dream. Walking on a Dream. They have in a, Excess or? Oh, not in no. Excess, but he worked with In Excess. In Excess, oh. post-Michael Hutchins have used this album. Um, what are they called? Empire of the Sun. Empire of the Sun. Uh, an electronic band. They were fantastic. But they had this studio, Linear Studio in Sydney, phenomenal, okay? Um, had so many instruments. And just by exposure to these instruments and picking them up in the studio you could hear these albums that were coming out of it were eclectic okay mm-hmm. so the exposure and access to the to these instruments sort of lended itself to be included in the mix whereas they weren't they weren't put behind closed doors so you had you know all different types of keyboards pianos lots of different types of guitars you know and he really invested in this way of working so it was a different way of working, say, when I was in Rafa's, where it was all about the uh, the studio and the studio was an instrument in itself. Whereas in linear studios in, in Australia, it was much more, we've got all these different things, let's play. Mm. And it was a different mindset. And I found it really refreshing um, because like, even though I can play in the piano, you know, you know, you can lend that, that same skill into the keyboards or into different types of keyboards my, my mind has gone blank like synthesizers and so forth the same key structures are there and the same ways to build the chords are there and it was just really interesting to say well actually that sound doesn't work in this this doesn't really work well let's try it on this over here that's what is this instrument and we, we were literally working like that and it got to the point where there was a lap steel in the background and i was like wow wow i've always wanted to i wanted to see and touch a lap steel because they're usually only at gigs Maybe you've turned, done to, to explain to listeners that don't <laughs> know what steel. a lap steel is, what it is. A lap steel is typically uh, the sound that you would hear in a country and western song. Like, you know, and it's it's held on the lap, okay? It's got steel strings on it, and you would tend to have a, a kind of a bottle or Bottleneck. a neck. Yeah, like to make that kind of sound. And you've got some pedals on the ground to, to try to increase the reverbs and stuff with that, as far as I remember. 
um, I was not able to play that very well, okay, even though I was able to play the guitar, okay. In fact, um, when I say I wasn't able to play it well, that is doing well a disservice because I was awful, okay. And we ended up getting a great guy in, can't remember his name, to, to play lap steel on a couple of songs. And it is one of the most beautiful instruments on this planet, okay. It just sonically fills stuff up. I'm pretty sure I heard it. Um, on you know lots of the stuff from the thrills just going back to your previous episode of yeah. Porik and it's just it's one of those things that would take a long time to get good at okay so it's a stringed instrument but it's something that I just wasn't able to get my head around it was holding the guitar differently so how you form your chords and all that kind of stuff were, and I, was, I like it because it's one big uh, glissando so yeah. you're not bound to the frets to, it sounds a little bit like uh, this in one way yeah. you also could do yeah. with, a, with a lap steel. Yeah. And, uh, and, 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 and that brings in something new, although yeah, the, the bass is like a string, it's, it's the same. Yeah. Hey, talking, of, talking about studio and, the, and all these <laughs> studio experiences, the mixer, the producer and, and everything, mm. what would be for service design, what would be our studio or should yeah. be, should every company have a studio what would what would it be so that it's not just a metaphor that we talk about music and then then we talk mm. about design but how can we make it an analogy so that that yeah, it really yeah. goes together that people are inspired by it how to okay. how, how would you set this up would you need musicians well of course you need musicians okay and the musicians in this instance you know it would be um in that instance, you would just nat naturally think they're the people, okay? But I think in service design, um, people are the most important thing, okay? So we, we, we work with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you need a studio? Yes, you need an environment, whether it be uh, online or an office. Um, how you work, the processes that work, um, you might be able to co-create music, I co-create things through online, but I still believe face-to-face -face is going to win every single time in that argument. It's not going to go away. Like We still need that face-to-face -face connection to really stimulate the ideas, to stimulate the, the, the sort of aspect of communication. Um, and we miss an awful lot of that stuff um, just holistically within our lives. Like we, we need to be around people to feel safe and to feel like we're actually being listened to. Um, we spoke about it at the start there, like, you know, people turn off the cameras and turn off the things. I don't know if I'm being listened to. And that has, a, has an effect on our, on our psychological well-being. And when you are working in this kind of space, in the design and innovation space, you have to be comfortable with making yourself vulnerable. And that's the same thing as uh, musicians. So to put yourself out there and say, I've got an idea. Uh, this is a, a certain lyric that I have that keeps on playing back in my mind. In the music world, it, it's, it feels comfortable to say that, like the, the song just arrived. Um, whereas a lot of those things in business or in design and innovation, you don't have that sense of vulnerability or a comfortability with saying, well, like, I want to do this because I've had an instinct or a gut. Whereas in music creation, it's very much welcomed. Okay, like that, that whole kind of thinking is, is there. So going back to your, your question about in service design, I think people really at the end of the day are, are the instruments, okay? So we, we don't really worry about, I don't really worry about titles or, um, you know, frameworks or any of these things. Like, you know, as you said, like, you know, they are, they're the instruments in, in some ways. But I like to think of the people and working with different types of people 
um, is really important to make sure we're, we're getting inclusivity and accessibility as part of how we work. It's, it's, it's amazing how many organizations don't think like that and they end up having teams that are made up of men who've all got no hair and beards and glasses. Okay, right? <laughs> it, it looks like if, if there's designers listening here, I guarantee you they know a couple on their team. And they all end up looking the same. And you know what? A lot of the services that they create are heavily flawed. You know, they're very much uh, designed for, for privilege and designed for, you know, exclusivity. They don't design for inclusivity. So we need to make sure that, you know, what, who we have as part of our, um, our team or our band um, reflect the people that we're designing for. I mean, that's that's so important. Um, I don't know. The analogy can go all the way down. We could say, like, who's the guitarist? Who's the bassist? But I really don't care. It's more about the person and, and having the right people in the team to start with. Yeah, and that, that also comes back to the human-centered design because yeah. all humans are different and uh, all all humans are yeah come from different places, from different levels of money yeah. or, or country. Absolutely. And the most important thing is to understand them. I, I, re I really love... Um, your um, let's say bringing the vulnerability mm. and so that, that you yeah that that you're open and, and, and really share what you think mm. instead of that you get smacked on your head because yeah absolutely what are you doing now yeah <laughs> bringing the emotions i mean belina raffi who's part of this is doing okay is a phenomenal facilitator okay and has has a workshop around this whole thing about you know designing for vulnerability and bringing that level of of thinking into your work in a day-to-day -day basis. And it's harder to do this online, okay? But you can still totally teach this stuff. Um, Belina's work is brilliant. It's about um, building jokes together, building a stand-up routine, which I still put as the pinnacle of performance, by the way, the ability to stand up in front of people with a microphone and try and make them laugh. That stuff scares the hell out of me. But Belina is a master. You know, it's, it's okay to stand up there and, you know, tell bad jokes. And you, you're trying to encourage this sense of, of responsibility from the team to support that type of, of mindset. And it's what I would see as one of the great weaknesses amongst businesses out there that they don't create these sense, uh, these, these environments of safety. They create the opposite there's environments of fear and toxicity and it's something that we need to get better at in order to make sure that what we're designing and how we're designing and why we're designing more to the point um is considered wow that sounds uh, sounds good to me and yeah this uh, encourage people to to be to be their 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 self their their yourself their their, their best uh, their best self and bring in different people yeah Jerry, thank you very much for, for this talk and no, thank uh, you. And sharing these two, let's say, two fields, but it's like the brain. You have the left side and the right side, and yeah. maybe for us it's the design, service design, production, working for business, and the other one is like the feeling, the sound, and we know that, um, yeah, we only have one head. Well, before we go, folks, I know we're all listening, and we all love the work that Christoph does. Can we all have a round of applause for Christoph, please? <laughs> one of the best one of the best thank you so much for listening I really appreciate this because listening is one of the top leadership skills and I feel honored about this it is my mission to find create and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies 
If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. And more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com.